All right, our scripture text can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. It can be found on the screen as well. Paul is continuing to talk about the resurrection and the implications of the resurrection. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. Well, I remember it was college, and it was actually my first date with my wife that I went to see that wonderful uh, Frank Capra film, It's a Wonderful Life. And you remember lovable George Bailey, right? In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a story of what would have happened if George Bailey had never been born. And the movie shows the consequences and the issues. Well, I really don't want to talk about George Bailey, but I do want to talk about Jesus. What are the consequences if Jesus had never been reborn? Indeed, that's what some seem to be saying here. Verse 12, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some were saying that about Jesus and humanity in entirety. Some were saying that Jesus was resurrected, but that people uh, could not be resurrected, that it was a one-time affair. And this is a question that has to be addressed because Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be among many tenets of its belief, 
Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all. Christianity would collapse on itself. But you see, Jesus Christ has been raised, and it changes everything. Because Jesus' life has the power to pull our lives from death to life. And so we must see Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of ours. I'm going to tackle three questions that Paul brings up in this passage. Number one, what are the consequences if the resurrection is not true? Number two, what are the consequences because the resurrection is true? And then finally, how shall we live in light of the truth of the resurrection? Let's begin with point number one. What are the consequences if the resurrection is not true? Now, we need to understand a little bit of the world that the Corinthians lived in. If the Jews had their Old Testament, the Old Testament to the Greeks, the Greco-Roman world, was Homer. Homer was a poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And these poems and others by Homer were the foundation of education and culture for the Greco-Roman world. And what is it that Homer said about the dead? He said that the dead would become shades or phantoms that would dwell in this sort of nether world, that you would not be able to interact with them, or they would not have a physical, but rather a shadowy and wispy existence. If the Greco-Romans had Homer as their Old Testament, they had Plato as their New Testament. And Plato believed in the essence of a human being, that the essence of a human being was the soul, the the non-material aspect of the body, that life in the body was full of delusion and danger. And it was really only the soul that was to be cultivated because it was only the soul that would pass on. Indeed, the body was a kind of prison, and the soul would be happy to be rid of the body as it lived on in some other existence. In both the Old Testament and New Testament of the Greco-Roman world, death was a one-way street. Aside from the Jews, no one in the ancient world believed in a bodily resurrection. That's why in Acts 17.32, when Paul is debating with the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens, he speaks of the resurrection and it says that some of them sneered because they didn't believe in such nonsense. The Corinthians were raised in that world. And yet Paul has explicitly preached to them already in the gospel, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. That death is not a one-way street. That there is no shadowy netherworld of existence, but a, a corporal resurrection of the righteous. And yet their temptation is to revert back to the way that they have grown up, to the things that they heard on the street Every day. And so Paul begins to tick off here in verses 12 through 19 the consequences if there is no resurrection. Number one, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. See that in verse 13? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Paul is showing us that there is a solidarity between Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection. 
As I said before, some people are saying, well, Christ was raised from the dead, but Christ is God, or he's some sort of superhuman, that the rules don't apply to him, but they do to us. But Paul is saying, no, no, Jesus died as a man, as our representative. The same rules that are upon us are upon him. And if he died and did not uh, rise again, then neither shall we. It's not one or the other. It's a both and. And notice that everything hinges on Christ. If Christ has not been raised, then you will not be raised. See, what Christ has accomplished on the cross is only to able to be validated and applied to us if he rose from the dead. Otherwise, he's just another religious martyr that lived for something and died for his faith. So if there's no resurrection, that Christ has not been raised, point one. And then we see in verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Number two, your, our preaching is in vain. The word vain is kenos, which means empty. If you took a jar and you poured everything out, what would be in the jar? And the answer is nothing. It would be empty. That's the literal meaning of kenos. The metaphorical meaning is futile or useless. In other words, everything that we have taught you about Jesus Christ is in vain. Indeed, everything in the New Testament that I'm preaching from, everything that you read and have believed in, it's useless. Even further, Paul says, we're a bunch of liars because we've been misrepresenting the truth about God. And if number two, our preaching is in vain, then number three, your faith is in vain. What you have believed is futile. That God actually sent a man who died for our sins and has the ability to give us life and a hope and a future. See, some of these people have made life choices based on this regarding their job and have experienced discrimination, persecution, ostracism, fracturing of relationships. Paul is saying if Jesus Christ has not been raised, all of that is for nothing. And there are consequences, right? Think about that for your own life. How long have you been a Christian and decided to follow Jesus? Where you have looked to him for faith to sustain you in the tough times. When you have made decisions that have cost you. Paul is saying it's all a waste. Because consequence number four, you are still in your sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then there is no such thing as grace or forgiveness. The wrong choices that you made, the decisions that you made have all the consequences of the world. All the ways that you did not measure up to who you know deep down that you were supposed to be and what you were supposed to do, they are still with you. And there's no way to get rid of them. I don't know if you're a Shakespeare fan or not, if you've read the play Macbeth. And if you remember Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, they conspire to kill King Duncan. And they do the deed and all is well. But that there is this issue of the conscience that begins to gnaw at them. 
And Lady Macbeth, she will awake in a dream and a stupor, and she's walking around the halls of the castle, washing her hands, saying, out, out, damn spots, trying to get the blood of what she has done off of her hands and not able to do so. See, there's no solution for sins without grace. The solution for sin may be gone, but the condemnation remains. For only God can forgive sins, and he is not. And so the only future that we have is death. For the wages of sin is death. Consequence four was you are still in your sins. Consequence number five, the dead are not raised. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The word perish, apolumi in the Greek, means more than just perished or passed away. It means destroyed. It means put to death. It doesn't mean simply ceasing to exist, but rather bearing the consequences for their sin. For God is utterly just. And every wrong in this world must be paid for. Every careless word, every hateful thought, every wrong committed against us must be paid for, right? We want there to be justice to the people that have done things to us. And yet we don't expect God to do the same for us. But there is no one else to pay. So the future is eternal death and separation from God. Furthermore, there's, never, there's no hope to ever seeing those again who you love, who have passed away. Those in your life who brought joy and friendship and love and comfort. One minute they're here, and the next they're gone for eternity. And there's nothing you can do about it. For you see, the next consequence is we have no hope. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, if you're hoping for something to last, to be eternal, it's useless because everything perishes. The only hope we can have for is in this world, for stuff we get, for pleasure, for whatever it is. Right? And you've experienced hoping simply for things in this world. You really, really want that car, and you finally get that car, and it's so fun for about a month. And then it goes on and on and on, right? And it gets old and old, and you forget about it because all things are passing away. Maybe you find love. Maybe you find peace. But any minute it could be snuffed out. Because you know where this ends. And so Paul finishes with this, that if there is no resurrection, we above all people are the most to be pitied. And why is that? Well, it's because we had hope. That we believed that there was something out there. That we put our trust in it. But it's a pipe dream. You know, when you put your hope in something, and really put all your heart in it. And then it doesn't come true. It's even worse, isn't it? It would have been better not to hope at all than to hope and then have it not fulfilled. I don't know if you're familiar with the 
song that was put out in 1977 went to the top 10 and stayed there for weeks and weeks. It was written by the band Kansas. Kelly uh, Livgren, who was not a Christian at the time, who later became a believer, was reflecting on the futility of life. And he wrote a song on his acoustic guitar, and it was called Dust in the Wind. And this is the lyrics. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity. Dust in the wind, all they are is dust in the wind. It's the same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. And then the final verse, now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind, all we are is dust in the wind. I don't know if Kelly Livgren had ever heard Genesis 3.19, the curse that was put on mankind after having sinned in the garden. But it was the same proclamation, wasn't it? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We have the temptation, like the Corinthians, to believe our culture, which tells us what the future holds, but really lies to us. See, our secular world, our atheistic world, says that you can have life and meaning and, and purpose and dignity as you, while you live. But the equation of atheism says otherwise. You see, if atheism, what it says is that we came from nothing. We're a cosmic accident. And when all is said and done and we die, we will go back to nothing. We came from nothing. We go to nothing. And yet somehow in between these two, you can have meaning and purpose and value and dignity. No, if you came from nothing and you go to nothing, the answer is you're dust in the wind. Or the other lie that it's an endless circle of life, that life is reborn again and again, and it's beautiful, and so on. But when you die, your carbon and your nitrogen might be recycled, but you will be gone. Because without the resurrection, death is a one-way street. It's not a circle of life. It's actually a circle of death. So we have to ask ourselves the question, save for the resurrection, what am I looking to, to find dignity and value in this life and the life to come? Is it the toys of this world? Is it the adulation of the crowd? Is it the accomplishments that I make in industry or society? If these are the things that I'm basing my life on, life on, they all will go. They all will perish. They all will be dust in the wind. Because if there is no resurrection, that's all we are. But thank goodness the story does not end here. Because I want to talk about the consequences that we see because the resurrection is true.
See, Paul goes on in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice what he says. It's not in hope. It's in fact. See, Christianity is based on a historical fact. And historical facts can be examined in a courtroom based on evidence. And indeed, Christianity has been examined and the resurrection and found to be solid and verifiable. Paul says Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, the sentence that all of humanity shares in death, we share in solidarity with Adam. We are the children of Adam. If you'll remember, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and received the curse upon themselves and their offspring. Let me give you an example. What country has the highest rate of skin cancer in the world? The answer is Australia. And interestingly enough, the second highest skin cancer rate is New Zealand. Now you may ask, why is that? Well, the answer is because Australia and New Zealand have a large population of people that came there through migration, from Europe specifically. And their skin is not equipped for dealing with the sun at that particular latitude. Well, you might say, well, that was hundreds of years ago, right? But you see, the descendants of those settlers have the same characteristics as their parents. The same DNA, the same skin, and thus the same malady. See, we share the same, we were born into this world sharing the same DNA as Adam. And we share the same destiny. But Paul is saying that another man has come. One with a different DNA. A DNA of obedience. A DNA of holiness. A DNA of favoredness of God. He lived a perfect life as a perfect man and died as punishment for our sin. And he was raised to life to show his atoning death was sufficient. Now, Jesus said that he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. But the scriptures are very clear, clear that Jesus did not raise himself. That it was God the Father who raised him from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. God announcing his judgment upon the Son, that the Son should not stay dead because he has committed no wrong. Rather, he has died for the sins of his people, that his death is sufficient to atone for my wrath. It is the love and holiness of Christ that overcame the grave. And Jesus has the power to transfer us out of the line of Adam into his line of grace. To be born again, as Jesus was born again by the Holy Spirit. Through faith 
in the work of Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all will die, so those in Christ all shall be made alive. And so if consequence number one is that we now have a way of salvation, consequence number two is we now have a certain future. Jesus is called the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And in then verse 23, we see that there's an order of resurrection, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ. Now, even back then, the, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the Hebrews, they all lived in an agrarian society. And each one of them had religious feasts in which they would offer the first fruits of the harvest to their gods. And so when the first fruits, what that means is when there was a harvest that was beginning, they would be looking for the first fruit that was to come, the heads of grain or corn or dates or whatever it was, and they would bring them to God to bring them the, the fruits, the first fruits, because they came from him. My wife uh, planted a garden uh, this year, and I remember the first part of the garden. She, she'd send me out to start to be looking, right? Has anything come? Has anything started yet? Is anything ready? And so I'd go out there, and I'd be peeking under the leaves and looking around for the first fruit. And finally, you know, one was ripe enough to go ahead and pick and bring. And it was great, but it also brought the certainty that within a couple of weeks, I'd be able to go out there and they'd be all around, right? It was just the beginning of that which was coming. And that's what Paul is saying, that there is an order. That Jesus Christ is the first fruit. That he appeared, that he was born again. And the rest of the fruit, those who belong to him, will appear as well in time when he comes again. See, we look at the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection as two separate events. But that's not the way to look at it. Rather, they are two aspects of the same event. That is the same life, the life of Christ, the same spirit, the same process, simply a different time. And as such, we have, if you are a follower of Christ, a certain destiny. A resurrection that has already begun in our spirits that will ultimately take place, culminating with the resurrection of our bodies. And if you want to know what you will look like when the fruit is finally picked from the tree, look at Jesus Christ. For what happened to him will happen to us. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. We now have a certain future, and consequence number three, Jesus is already on the throne. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. See, Jesus has received already authority to rule because of his obedience. 
Well, didn't he already have authority to rule? I mean, he's the son of God. The scriptures tell us that the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. That man was created to rule under God's authority over this earth. And mankind gave away his rule to Satan. And in order for things to be made right, a man had to take it back. Jesus, the son of God, could have squashed Satan like a bug. But Jesus needed to take back this earth and its people through suffering. See, Satan had taken a hostage. Human shields, right? That's one of the most despicable acts in war, right? I'm going to set up my command post in a hospital so you won't bomb it. That's Satan, right? If you kill me, what about all of these other people? You've got to kill them too because they did the exact same thing that I did. If you are just God. So before Jesus could kill Satan, he had to come and to pay the ransom with his blood, stripping away the authority that Satan has over us and separating us from him so he could now destroy him. And Jesus is in the process of putting all of his enemies under his feet. He is in the process of gathering the harvest, picking the fruit one by one as it appears off the vine, waiting for that final piece of fruit to appear. And he has given us this great commission to participate in this harvest, right? Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Once that final Christian is harvested and comes to faith, and no one knows in what age it will be, could be 20 minutes from now for all we know, the end will come. And we see consequence number four, the death of evil. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. He allows Satan to continue to stir up trouble because Jesus came not to bring peace on earth, but rather division, to separate the sheep from the goats. We know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities. But we know how this ends. Revelation 20.10, And the devil who had deceived the believers was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We will see the death of Satan, and with that, the death of corruption. There is a corruption of sin on the earth, a consequence of it. We see it with cancer in our bodies, with disease, with famine, with natural disaster. All of that will be taken away, and the earth will be reborn. And all of this will culminate with victory over the ultimate enemy. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
we will see the death of death. Because death is a curse. And if the curse is gone, there is no more death. And at this point, the resurrection must occur, right? Because death has no power. It has no sting. There's a plant that's sitting, uh, when I wash the dishes, my wife, is, uh, she loves plants. She loves life. I would kill anything. I, I'd be the plastic plant guy. Uh, but she loves plants. And there's this one little plant, and I look at it uh, when I'm washing the dishes. And I think about that little plant. Because at one time, that little plant was just a little seed. And that seed was inert. All of the life was in it. But it had not begun to spring forth. So what is it that activated that seed? What is it that began its life? It was the water. And it was the soil. That when it was planted into that soil and water was given into it, some unknown set of instructions began to function. And its life began drawing it slowly upward. And its initial life, it was hidden. I couldn't see anything because it was underneath the dirt. And yet its life was there, springing up forward. It was growing. In fact, it couldn't help it. It's what it was designed to do. That somehow it knows that the source of its life is the sky. And it reaches up toward it. You know, the process looks calm and beautiful on the outside, but it really isn't. You know, if I was to interview that plant, I wonder what it would say as it talks about its growth. As the skin of the plant continually stretches and splits and has to be regrown, as gravity continues to push down upon it, and yet inexorably it rises because of the life that is in it. And as I interviewed it, I wonder if it would speak about its hope of the time when it reaches the fullness of what it was meant to be. See, my friends, you and I, if you are in Christ, are like that seed. That you have been made alive by the blood and the spirit of Jesus Christ. That there is a spiritual birth that has begun inside of you. That even if people can't physically see it on the outside, there is a transformation process that is occurring. See, my friends, to be a Christian, in a very real sense, is to be dissatisfied. Because we know that we are made for more. And we know that we are not complete. But also to be a Christian is to be hopeful to fix our eyes on what is unseen. There's so much despair and uncertainty in this world, but not for us, for we know who holds the future. To be a Christian, finally, is to be a witness that my life cannot help but be a testimony of new life, that the gospel which is functioning in me brings the spirit and the blood as I embrace this new life and speak it to others. This is the future. This is what we are called to. 
I don't have time to go into my third point. But I simply ask you the question. Where is your life? Is it the resurrection life of Jesus Christ? Or is it the life of what this world has to offer? Am I a child of Adam? Or am I a child of God? Embrace the life of Jesus Christ. Because his is the life that pulls us from the grave to the sky. And our resurrection is simply the second aspect of his. That is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for what you have done, that you have come and rescued us through the person of Jesus Christ, that you've given us new life, a life that springs forward in our hearts and cannot help but reach its fruition. God, help us to wake up, to place our life and our hope in nothing else but you. For you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.